Well, if you have a Bible this morning, if you have a Bible there in front of you, if you want to turn to Psalm 1, that is our sermon text today, Psalm 1, the very first psalm in in the book of Psalms. And I'll ask, as is our custom, that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms that teach us uh, how to respond properly in worship of you, in knowledge of you, no matter what our circumstances may be. We thank you even for Psalm 1 that we're looking at this morning, and we ask as always, that you would be our teacher, that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would work in us by him and give us eyes to see and ears to see, ears to hear, rather, great things, even from your word this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, a commentator of many years ago, William Plummer, said of this psalm, he says, it is a, quote, a compend, a compendium, a compend of all the psalms and indeed of all scripture. In many ways, I I don't think he could be more correct. Uh, Psalm 1 is, in a lot of ways, it summarizes everything that follows it in the rest of the Psalter. And in a lot of ways, it also summarizes the rest of Scripture. The Psalm, Psalm 1, it tells us, among other things, what's what's the main thing it teaches us this morning? If I could borrow the title of of a gospel tract that we often use, it tells us that there are two ways to live. That there are two ways to live, and only one of those ways leads to life and to blessing. Now, the word, the word way is found at least three times in our text, and where it's found is also kind of instructive. It's found once in verse 1 at the beginning, and it's found uh, twice there in verse 6 at the end. So you could say that the idea of these two different ways serves to bookend the psalm. It begins and ends with these references to the different ways that it, uh, these two different ways that the psalm puts before us this morning. This morning, uh, we're going to break our usual precedent, and rather than having a three-point sermon, we're going to have, for the sake, a two-point sermon. Don't worry, I'll try to make it as long as I usually do. Uh, but, so two, two ways, and not anything hard to guess what the outline might be. Uh, that is the way of the righteous, or you could say even the way of blessing, and the secondly being the, the way of the wicked. So the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The psalmist, uh, most think it's David, contrasts the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked throughout the psalm. Here in this psalm, uh, David contrasts the three different things about these ways. The manner, should have made this my outline, but I didn't, contrast the manner of the two ways. What are these two ways? What characterizes these two different ways of living? It contrasts, the psalm does, not just the manner, but the results, or if you want to use more the wording of the psalm, the fruits, or the results of those two ways, 
And lastly, and maybe most importantly in many ways, he contrasts the final end or the destination of those two ways. Where those two ways lead? Where those two different ways lead in verses 5 through 6? Now, the manner of life that he sets forth in these two different ways are very different. They are polar opposites in many ways. One is influenced by what? The counsel of the wicked. And slowly but surely that person settles into a lifestyle marked primarily by sin, while the other is influenced by something else, isn't it? The other is influenced by a life of delighting in and meditating upon not just the word of God in general, although that certainly is implied, but what, what in specific about the word of God does the psalmist mention more than once? The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. The fruits or the results of such a life of these two different lives could also not be much more different than they are in the psalm. One leads the life of its traveler, the one who goes by it, to be like a, a well-watered tree planted by streams of water who always bears fruit, who doesn't wither in time of, of drought. And the other is like what? Chaff. The exact opposite. One leads to bearing fruit and being sustained through the scorching winds of trial and adversity. The other leads to withering and being tossed about by every slight wind or breeze of adversity. Probably most importantly for us, the, the final destination of each of these two ways is shown to be as different as night and day. One leads to blessing and eternal life, while the other leads to judgment and being cut off from the congregation of the righteous. The word of God, I think, here is holding before us a choice, isn't it? It's holding before us a choice. You might, might notice, maybe you didn't, there's not an imperative to be found in the psalm. Nowhere does the psalm say, do this. And yet, it kind of has that implied, doesn't it? It sets, before, it sets before our eyes these two different ways and says, you know, choose wisely the path that you're going to be on. It holds us a choice. It says we can choose the way of blessing and life, or we can choose, as many do, the way of judgment. We are being here urged and exhorted by the scriptures to, to choose the way of blessing and choose the way of, of life. So the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 is the way of the righteous. See what this short psalm has to say to us about that. You might notice that the first thing the psalmist does is, and this is helpful very often, uh, is he describes the manner of the way of, of the righteous negatively. Sometimes it's helpful to do that. In other words, he describes the, the blessed man, the blessed person, in terms of what he or she does not do before he tells us what they do actually practice. He says in verse 1, blessed, that should get our attention right away. The first word of the Psalter and of the psalm is blessing, blessed, kind of like the Beatitudes that Jesus preaches in, in Matthew 5. He's blessed is the man who does what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, notice, it's not necessarily the, the wicked people that the blessed man avoids. It's easy to make that leap and say, oh, you know, what's the old saying our mothers have always told us, and with good reason, you know, choose your friends wisely. Uh, the scriptures say, uh, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. All of that is true. You can tell a lot about someone by the friends, the company that they keep, but that's not exactly the main point here in, in the psalm. 
the psalm, the psalmist says that the wicked person is not so much that we're to avoid them like the plague, but it's the counsel of the wicked that we are to avoid the influence of. It's not necessarily sinners that we avoid, but the, the way of, of sinners in our text. And how do we know that that's the case? Well, did Jesus avoid sinners? Did Jesus keep himself at, at arm's length away from all kinds of sinners who just hang around with the quote-unquote the, the good people, the righteous people? Were, were, were even his inner circle, the twelve, was one of them not of, of the devil even? No, Jesus didn't avoid sinners. He, in fact, he was accused of many things because he didn't. He was accused of being a, a wine bibber, you know, a drunkard and a glutton because what, he hung around sinners. He even drank we have to assume, uh, to some extent, with, with sinners. Mark 2, verses 15 to 17 tells us that he ate and drank with them. And it's not just the scoffers, necessarily, that he avoids, but the seat of scoffers that he avoids. There's a big difference between those two things. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13, he writes this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, his previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he has to explain what he meant and what he didn't mean. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to do what? You would need to go out of the world. Where are you going to go where they're not there? It, you'd have to get on a rocket ship and go somewhere Go somewhere else. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge, he's quoting the Old Testament here, purge the evil person from among you. What's the context? Church discipline. He's saying the church isn't, isn't intended to discipline those outside of her walls. Doesn't mean you don't tell someone if something is a sin and warn them of, of the, the results of it. Um, but we, we, aren't, we aren't to avoid contact with unbelievers. We aren't to avoid the contact with, with the wicked in some sense. But we are to avoid their, their influence. Uh, we're not to avoid... Uh, the ungodly outside of the church, because what does he say? You'd have to go outside of the world if you were going to try to do that. It's not just practically impossible. You'd have to live in a, you know, this is where the whole idea of monasteries came about. You know, avoid the sinful influences and just hold yourself up in your castle. The problem is we're also sinners too. But to do that would effectively muzzle our testimony of the gospel to other people, wouldn't it? If you never see an unbeliever, if you never rub shoulders, so to speak, with the wicked, how are they ever going to hear the gospel of life in Christ? The good news is for sinners, actual sinners, right? Not just hypothetical. There are no hypothetical sinners. It's for, it's for actual sinners. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that it's a trustworthy saying worthy of all acceptance. And what is that trustworthy saying? That Christ Jesus, quote, came into the world to do what? To save sinners. To save sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am chief. Paul said, Jesus came to save sinners like me. Notice in, the, in these first verses of the psalm, uh, the, the, the first verse especially, that the downward progression of, of the influence of, of wickedness. 
She says that it starts off, this person, by walking in the counsel of the wicked and then standing. So he goes from walking to stopping and standing still. Standing in the way of sinners and then finally, what does he do? Sits in the seat of scoffers or, or mockers. It, it shows the, the progression or regression, if you want to put it that way, of, of the influence of sin and of hardening of heart that happens through sin. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, writes, none, none reach the height of vice at once. None reach the height of vice at once. You know, people, maybe they've always done this, but people often scoff at the idea of the so-called slippery slope. Well, I think Psalm 1 warns us against such an idea. Nobody starts off seated at the seat of scoffers. They start by walking in the counsel of, of the wicked, and they eventually end up standing and then sitting in the seat of, of scoffers. In verse 2, the psalmist describes the way of the righteous or the way of, the, of blessing, not negatively now, but positively. First he says, here's what does not characterize the way of the righteous, and then he tells us what does. He tells us in terms of what this person does do. And what, what is the psalmist's alternative to walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers? You know, it's not what you might think. You know, if, if we were going to write this and we want to make it balanced out, we'd say that such a person uh, would do the opposite. He'd walk in the counsel of the godly. Now, it's certainly a true statement, but it's not what he says. That we'd stand in the way of, of the obedient or we'd sit in the seat of the, of the proverbial amen corner. All those things are, are good things, but it's not what he says. You know, what does the psalmist say? What does the psalmist say in verse 2 that characterizes the blessed man? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he does what? Meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. And night. The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of God. He delights in it, and so what, what does he do as a result of delighting in it? He meditates in it. What does it mean to meditate? It doesn't mean to stand around and hum. And, uh, it, it means to think about, to, to kind of, uh, they, they compare it to a, to a cow chewing the cud, to kind of roll it over in your mind and heart and think, think long and hard about what it's saying, about what it means. It means to spend time in it. To think about what it uh, means, what, how it applies to your life. The Hebrew word that's translated for delight there comes from a word that means to bend or to incline. You ever notice somebody when they're, when they're talking to someone or you, you watch somebody having a conversation, if they're really interested in what they're hearing, what do they often do? They lean forward. They lean forward. They, want, they don't want to miss what's being said. They're on the edge of their proverbial seat. Well, that's, that's the picture that, that, that the psalmist is, is painting for us even this morning through Psalm, through Psalm 1. We should be a people who are inclined towards the word of God, even the law of our God. It should be our inclination, our bent should be towards it. We should delight in it. We shouldn't recoil from it. If we recoil from God's law, there's something wrong. And it's significant that he does use the word law here. He uses the word law. He doesn't just say God's word, although that's true. He specifically mentions God's, God's law. And he does it twice in verse 2 as if to say, you know, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, that's right, you heard me right. I said law. 
I didn't just say uh, his word in some general way. He's saying this person delights in God's law. I, I dare say that sounds like a very uh, odd statement in our day to many, to many folks. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we might say that it sounds a bit odd to us even to speak of delighting in the law of God, and yet we should. We should delight in God's law. Kevin DeYoung uh, writes the following. He says, isn't it strange, he quotes C.S. Lewis, isn't it strange C.S. Lewis wondered that the law would be the psalmist's delight? Respect or reverence, we might understand, but delight, who delights in law? And why? Lewis explains, their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness, like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. I know that most of us here in this room didn't grow up around snow. Uh, I did back in, back in Pennsylvania. And I, I, when I think of this, I think of when I was a kid. You know, when you'd have snow, you'd have rain, and then it would freeze again. And you'd have, your sidewalk might be icy. Sometimes you couldn't even see it. We call it black ice on the road. And, you know, you'd walk and not be paying attention. All of a sudden, you'd almost take a header. And you were, you were all of a sudden very careful walking. Well, when you finally got to a, a patch of grass or a dry spot where you knew it was clear, what did you do? You know, thank God. <laughs> now I don't have to worry about breaking my neck just trying to walk to the mailbox or walk to school. You rejoiced at solid footing. And you were very cautious and anxious about the kind of footing that you might slip or fall upon. That's what the law of God is in many ways. It gives us a place to stand. We know what God, how God would have us to live as his redeemed people. We know that we see his reflection, reflection of God's character in his, in his law. When David says in verse 2 about delighting in his law and meditating in it day and night, what does it imply? It implies that there's a lot to delight in and a lot to meditate about in the law of God. So much so that the blessed man meditates in it how much? Day and night. Day and night. And if that's the case, there must be an awful lot in God's word, in God's law even, for us to think about, to learn, to digest, to apply to our lives. There's no end to what you and I can learn and delight in in God's law. And why, why should that not surprise us? What is the law, among other things? What does the law do? Or what, what is it a reflection of? God's moral law is his revealed will for his people, but it's also a reflection of his character. That's why it doesn't change. God's moral law does not change because it's based upon his own perfections. It's based upon his own character. It is not arbitrary. God didn't just sit up in heaven one day before creation flipping coins and saying, okay, this is right, this is wrong, you know, picking daisy, you know, flowers and saying, he loves me, he loves me not. This is right, this is wrong. No, it's based upon his own character. What does he say twice in the scripture? You shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. Where do you see the standard for God's holiness and for what, how he have you to live in his law? That's what it tells us. What are the results of the way of the righteous, the way of blessing? Verse 3. He says, he, this blessed person, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. Now, the psalmist there, I think, tells us at least four things from that, from that verse in verse 3. First, the believer is not a potted plant. 
He's not a potted plant. He's not cut flowers put in a vase that look nice for a time and then wither away because they have no connection. You know, when you put flowers in a vase, they're, they're basically already dead. They're not going to last long. Why? Because they really have no root. The water only sustains it for so long. No, the believer is planted. Planted, it says. He has roots. He will remain. Not only is the believer planted, but he's planted in a good place. You know, what do uh, what people that work in real estate always say? Location, 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 right? The three most important things. Well, where is this, where is this blessed person planted? By streams of water. The person who delights in God's word, in his law even, and meditates upon it, is planted by streams of water. Sounds like the law is a good thing. And notice he says streams. If you were writing it, if I was writing it, we would probably say planted by a stream of water. It's not what he says. It's like there's water everywhere where his roots go. The deeper his roots go, the more water the believer finds. He has an access to a constant supply of life-giving water, The word of God by his spirit is life-giving. It sustains us as his people. The second thing, because it's planted by streams of water, what happens? He yields its fruit in season. It yields its fruit in season. Jesus' words in John 15, 5 paint, I think, a similar picture. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, what will happen? He will bear much fruit And then he adds, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, Jesus' words there says much the same thing that Psalm 1 does. If you want to bear fruit, I think we all want to bear fruit. If you're a believer in Christ, do you not want to have a productive and fruitful life in serving the Lord? Well, if you want to have a fruitful and productive life in Christ, in serving him in his name, one of the things that's required for that There's no shortcut, there's no, uh, no pill to take, no easy uh, three steps that it requires delighting in and meditating in the word of God, even in his law, even in his, his law. You want to meditate and delight in the word of God, abiding in Christ and having his words abide in us is a part of that, John 15. Seven, the third thing that verse three tells us, because he's planted by those streams of water, what does he say? It's leaf does not wither. Now, he doesn't say there won't be any cause to wither. He doesn't say the weather's always perfect. He says it's planted by streams of water, that if it weren't for those streams of water, if it weren't for being rooted in them, you would wither. His leaf would wither, right? We see that every, every year here, most of the year. If you forget to water your lawn, suddenly you don't have a lawn. The sun scorches it because it doesn't have root by streams Of, of water, you will be able to withstand the heat of trials that come your way if you that your way if you abide in Christ, if you're planted by the streams of water that is found in the Word of God, even in His law. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, a place of withering in Matthew chapter four, how did He respond? Three times Satan gave him temptations. Three times Jesus repelled those temptations with Scripture. And I don't think it's an accident. What book did he quote from all three times? Deuteronomy. There's a lot in Deuteronomy for us to delight in and to meditate upon and to think about and to apply to our lives. Deuteronomy is one of the books of the law of Moses. Jesus delighted in the law of his father. 
he meditated in the law of his father. And in doing that, he not only did that for our salvation, but he did that to show us an example of the way that we should go. In a, in a real sense, Jesus is the blessed man in Psalm 1. First and foremost, he is the blessed man. He is the one, not us primarily, that, that delighted in the law of his father, that lived to do his will and meditated upon it day and night. We can only do the same if we are in him. Well, the fourth thing, as if to sum it up, the psalmist says in verse 3, in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be living the good life the way the world measures it. If you read your Bible, you read the story of Christ. Did Christ live the good life? Depends what you mean by that, right? Did he live a prosperous life materially in this life? No, he did not. It doesn't mean that you as a believer, if you meditate in God's law, you're going to have a carefree life. It doesn't mean you're going to be on easy street, despite what Joel Osteen and others falsely, falsely promise. What does it mean for you as a Christian this morning to prosper? What does it mean for you to prosper in whatever you do? Joshua chapter 1 uh, speaks about meditating upon the, Lord, the law of the Lord and prospering. You know, Joshua, who is Joshua? He's the one that was after Moses. Remember Moses struck the rock a second time when he was supposed to get water. He was supposed to speak to it, but he struck it. And what did God say? God did not allow him to go into the promised land because of it. That rock was a picture of Christ, so the striking of it a second time was especially grievous. We don't think about that. We think, he just hit a rock. What's the big deal? But the scripture says in the New Testament, the rock that followed them was Christ. It was a picture, a foreshadowing uh, of Christ. So he, didn't, he wasn't allowed to go in. God let him see it from a distance. So Joshua was tasked with taking the Lord's people into the promised land and conquering Canaan in obedience to the Lord. And the Lord kind of gives him a pep talk. I mean, you can imagine if you're Joshua and you just saw Moses for 40 years struggling with these disobedient, stiff-necked people. And Moses kind of passes the baton and says, it's all on you now, good luck. You know, Well, he gets a pep talk in the first chapter of Joshua. Maybe you've read this passage a few times before. Uh, the words are probably familiar to many of you. First, excuse me, Joshua 1, 6 through 9, it says, be strong and courageous. He says that multiple times in the chapter. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land, this is God saying it, that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success Wherever you go, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, it's easy to read that and say, okay, you know, whatever, that was a long time ago, long time before our day, you know, 3,000 years, whatever, what, however many years it was uh, between their day and ours. That's nice for Joshua. But when you read Joshua chapter 1, your mind should go to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. It's the same kind of a situation. And the same promise is made at the end of it. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go make disciples of all the nations, not just conquering a plot of land in Canaan. Go make disciples of the whole world, of all the nations. 
We don't fight with the weapons of warfare that the people did. Our weapons are spiritual weapons. It's the gospel. It's prayer. It's even the sacraments. And Jesus gives us the same promise, the same promise that he gave to Joshua. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What was the definition of success for Joshua? Doing God's will, taking the land that God had promised to give to their fathers. They had to go in and do what God said. God didn't just roll the welcome mat out and make everybody flee. You know, he, he didn't send other things in to cast them out. He sent his people in and they had to do what he said. And what did he tell Joshua to do? Not to let this book of the law depart from your mouth. That's a strange, strange way to say it. But he explains it by the next phrase, doesn't he? Not to let it depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. To meditate is to kind of murmur it to yourself, to talk about it to yourself. So he's saying, don't stop talking about it to yourself. Don't stop thinking about it. Don't stop rolling it around in your mind and heart and seeing what it is that God would have you to do and how and why. So the definition of prospering and success there is following God's will, doing the will of God. How could he be sure that he was doing what the Lord would have him do in leading the people into Canaan? Only one way, by not letting the book of God's law depart from his mouth, but meditating upon it day and night. And God promised blessing and success based upon that. Well, that brings us to the second point, the way of the, of the wicked. The last uh, half of the, of the psalm, really, not the entire last half, but most of it, focuses our attention now upon the way of the wicked. The psalmist says in verse 4, after saying all the stuff about bearing fruit in its season, not withering, and whatever he does, he prospers. And then he says what? The wicked are not so. All these things I just said about the righteous, not so. In fact, a, a, a more wooden literal way to put this first phrase is, not so the wicked. The first word is basically no. This is how it is for God's people when you meditate and delight in God's law. And here's exactly how it's not going to be for those, those who don't. It says the wicked are not so in verse 4. Rather than being like a fruitful tree, thriving where it's been planted, the wicked are like chaff. The wind drives away. What is chaff? You ever, uh, you ever eat sunflower seeds? You ever have the ones where you actually have to do the hard work of cracking the seed open and eating the seed? What do you do with the outer husk? You spit it out. You throw it away. You throw it on the ground and make somebody else clean it up. Don't do that. But, but it, that's, that's the chaff. Nobody, nobody, when you spit those out or throw them away, nobody stops you and says, wait, what are you doing? That's the best part. No, you, that's not the part you eat if you're normal. You spit that out. And the wind blows it away. It's, no, it's of no good to anyone. It serves no, no purpose. The planted tree isn't going anywhere, no matter how hard the winds of adversity blow against it. But what about the chaff? Wind blows it around everywhere. That's a picture of a life lived apart from the Lord and lived apart from the law of God. It's like being blown around like chaff. Verse 5, the psalmist tells us the end result of the wicked and their way. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, the unrepentant, they may find a way to blend in with God's people in this life. For a time, they might be members in good standing of the visible church. 
They might hardly ever miss a Sunday. They might partake of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. But on that last day, they will not be found in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows those who are his. David kind of summarizes it in the last verse, in verse 6. He says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. What does that mean? He guards you. You know, he's not leaving you to walk the way of the righteous on your own steam. He's not watching to see if you're going to slip up and then cast you away. He watches over your way, guarding his people. It sounds a lot like the words of Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Why? For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. It's often said there's safety in numbers. Um, Sometimes there's not. Sometimes going with the crowd is the worst thing that you can do. These two roads lead to some places that could be no more different than they are. The way of the righteous, uh, the person who delights in the law of God and Christ, that, that road leads to blessing. It leads to life, it leads to fruitfulness, and it leads to being guarded by the watchful eye of God himself, who neither slumbers nor sleeps in his care for his people. That's blessing. It doesn't get much more blessed than that, that knowing that God watches over you for your good when you abide in Christ. It's only because of God's mercy in Christ that we can approach his law now, not as a to-do list hanging over our heads. It's not a list where God gives to us and says, you know, you better do this or else. In Christ, it's something that we can delight in. Only the gospel does that. Outside of Christ, God's law is a crushing burden that you know you can't keep. You know you can't do it. If, if salvation were offered by your, based on your obedience, we would all be miserable and hopeless. But Christ has fulfilled God's law perfectly on our behalf. He has taken upon himself the penalty for our breaking of God's law, which we have broken in many ways, than we, more ways than we care to admit. You know, if we were to spend time in the Ten Commandments and thinking about them, meditating upon them, talking about them, praying about them, praying over them, we would see, among other things, how many ways we've broken all of them. But in Christ, we can delight in the law because Christ has fulfilled it in our place. He has lived the perfect life that you and I have failed in every way to live. His righteousness is put to your account by faith when you believe in him. Your sin is put to his account on the cross and is paid in full by his death there in our place. And now, having been saved by Christ, we can delight in his law, not having something hanging over our head, not as something we have to do for God to let us in, but as we can serve our Heavenly Father, we can, we can try to accommodate our life, to transform our life according to it by his, by his Spirit. It shows you and I how to live a life of gratitude for the salvation that is ours only in Christ Jesus. It's very much the same as what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, although he uses different words. He says there, Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. That's that's verse one of Psalm one. Don't be conformed to this world, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. But what? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By delighting in and meditating upon the word of God, even the law of God and the gospel as well. That by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Have your life transformed by the renewal of your mind, by by the word of God and by the power of his spirit. So don't be conformed to this world by walking in the counsel of the wicked, but be transformed by renewing your mind by God's word, by delighting and meditating upon the word of God. That that's the way of blessing in Christ. Jesus doesn't remove the law from our scope of vision. He doesn't say, I fulfilled it all, so now ignore it. He says, I fulfilled it all, now you can walk according to it in joy and in peace of conscience because you want to, not because you have to. It's a get to, not a have to. The grace of God in Jesus Christ changes God's law from a burden to our delight. That is the way that leads to blessing and life in him. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. We know that David says, oh, how I love your law. And we we find that strange many times. But we ask that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us grace to think like David did, the way the psalmist, uh, under your inspiration, even penned those words. Help us to love your law. Help us to delight in your word, to meditate upon it, to see it as a reflection of your holy character and perfections. Give us grace to more and more be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Give us grace to delight in your word and your law and meditate upon it day and night that we might be fruitful and abide in Christ and bear much fruit to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.